Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. And we're live. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. East Coast, 6.30 p.m. UTC. No idea what time it is in Australia. Sorry, folks. I'll look that up for the next one. How you doing, fellas? Doing okay. How's everybody? That's the kind of energy I want. Bring the energy. Yeah. Really Thanks. bringing the heat there, Billy. Take a snooze. Uh, New Jersey, first in the house. Sup, New Jersey? How's that? That was better. Chapel Hill. Cincinnati. I'll just call out the first five. All righty. Whose intro is it? Uh, It's probably mine, I guess. Sure. Welcome to Value After Hours, uh, where we discuss uh, stuff that we read on Twitter last week. Uh, (laughs) That is due diligence these days, isn't it? Yeah. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jake Taylor and Bill Brewster. Jake, what are you talking about today? I have a little veggie segment that I'm calling the data of long-lived institutions. Oh, yeah, I like that. Lindy institutions, maybe. I don't know. Mm, could be. What about you, Bill Brewster? I think I'm going to talk about Buffett selling Costco and a never-sell world. Mm, I didn't even yes. know he bought it. <laughs> I barely did either. I'll be talking... How about you, Toby? I'll be talking uh, value, deep value couple of the deep value guys who've managed to hang on for the last decade could be uh their their vehicles could be interesting i looked at i got a i got a, an email yesterday saying take a look at greenlight re so i had a very quick look at greenlight re and also uh icons iep so i'll be talking about them uh right after this who wants to go first i do not so jake feel free all well, right i guess we can <laughs> You want you want to lead off? I don't mind. I'm happy to. I'll happy to. I'll lead off if you don't want to do that, because I've I've just read this before I came on, and it's all in my short term memory, and I don't yeah, want to fall let's out before. Get that out, Toby, before you forget <laughs> <Do> everything. <it. laughs> so Einhorn, uh, genius for a decade. Goat, uh, goat. The the goat for a decade. A goat for the last decade. Uh, I think it could be back to the goat stage, possibly uh, for the coming decade. If if value gets a little run on again. Um, I've been hunting through some of the small cap value names, small and micro. There's some really interesting stuff in there. I pitched Diamond Hill on the Investors Podcast over the weekend, um, which is a which is a value investor, manages value funds. Uh, they've got some performance and other fees in there, so it's a real long short uh, plus long only. They've got about twenty billion dollars. Pretty pretty incredible returns on invested capital, as you'd expect from that kind of vehicle. Um, Greenlight Re is David Einhorn's sort of public vehicle that you you can invest in if you're not a um, 
if you're not accredited or an institution, yeah, you can invest through Greenlight Re. They've got different exposures to the hedge funds because they've got different constraints and it's also a reinsurer. So you've got the reinsurance risk there too that they don't that they just get the reinsurance wrong. So I uh, had a very quick look. Book value is a little bit north of twelve dollars. Uh, grew at a couple of percent last quarter. Um, trading at eight dollars thirty-five today, so it's at about two thirds of book. Uh, you get Einhorn at a discount. They're buying back stock pretty consistently, although they said they've got lots of investment opportunities, and and stock is not their favourite thing to buy back because they're not in, they're not planning to liquidate. Uh, biggest holding is Aircap AER. Uh, I think it's very very undervalued, but it's one of those positions that, uh, you know, given the infinite number of uh, future paths, there's a few of those future paths where Aircap is a donut, and uh, you know, I'm I'm always a little bit nervous about those kind of businesses, but I I, I do hold a few of them. If you size them small, little option size positions that can be donuts, it's fine. It's their largest position though, so it makes that makes me a little bit <laughs> makes me a little bit nervous, but. I think it's kind of interesting at this kind of price and because they short as well, there's, there's a reasonable chance that if we go through some, uh, if, the, if the world gets busted up, if we go through some an, another recession and that, that shows up in the stock market, then uh, they should be protected. They might do reasonably well in that kind of scenario. So I think Greenlight Re is interesting and worth taking a look at if you, if you like the jockey. And uh, it's a reasonable looking horse, although parts of it might end up in the glue factory. IEP, similar kind of, um, similar, it's a stable maybe rather than a single horse. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big Icon fan. I think he's a great investor. IEP uh, is kind of an extraordinary uh, part, you know, stock. it's not a stock, it's a master limited partnership, I think. Got this incredible run. Uh, you, you have a look at it like whenever when value really gets going, it gets on this parabolic tear. Uh, it's it's kind of close to the bottom. I'm not I'm not predicting a parabolic tear or anything like that. The only reason I think it's interesting, it's a collection of pretty cyclical businesses, but it's got lots of energy and automotive that kind of exposure. It pays two dollars a quarter uh, in dividends pretty consistently last five quarters, and I. Th- and it's grown pretty consistently too over the last since 2015 or 16. It's it's grown. Uh, it's paid about a dollar extra a year, so it's like five, six, seven, eight, and then it's stayed steady for this year. So it's another two dollars. Stocks at like fifty-two dollars, so it's it's like a fifteen or sixteen percent yield at this price. And you get Icon. He owns ninety-two percent of the units in it. He pays himself units in his distribution, so he doesn't take the cash. So it's one of those things that you're in, you're 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 along for the ride with ICAM. That's not such a bad thing. Um, but that's the... he's been kind of quiet lately, hasn't he? He hasn't. There's no no fights with Ackman or I mean, what's he what's yeah. he doing these days? Yeah, I don't know. I I I have seen him around a little bit, but not not doing much. I guess he's he's in his eighties now. Yeah, is that why uh, I guess some of the discount on Icon? I I just think I'd I'd be a little bit nervous. Again, his son, his son did Netflix. I don't know that much about his son. I but I being well, on his son, his son got in Netflix. I know, I know. Yeah, I just don't know that much about him. I'd want to know more about him. Um, All I know is they play chess together, and I, I, I've, <laughs> started, I've started I've started playing chess again. <laughs> I've started playing chess again since. 
I haven't played since 2016 and I've, I've unfortunately, I think I mentioned on one of the podcasts or, or Bill mentioned on one of the podcasts and now I'm playing all these guys who've got like 1,800 chess uh, chess ratings in chess.com and that's way too high. I'm terrible. Just atrocious. I, I guess it, when you're on the other side of someone like Icon and IEP, do you wonder, is he going to take advantage of me sometime? Like that's That would be my biggest concern. He's not exactly somebody that uh, I wouldn't. I, I don't know. He's he's got a sharkier image than many. Thing is, it's been out there for a long time, right? It's been trading yeah. for a long time, and uh, it's been cheaper than where it is now. So he's had lots of opportunities to kind of take you under it. I just think he already controls ninety-two percent of it. It's publicly listed. It's just a wafer. You know, and and he takes all these distributions in stock. I've got in the in the units. That's, I've got that up on the uh, on the screen. He's not buying. He's getting distributions in. He takes his distributions in kind. So you're always getting diluted, and and he's securing more control. So you're along for the ride with Icon. But if you're invested in his fund, you'd be in the same boat. Yeah, that's the only thing that I've ever sort of been like. I don't know, but I don't know him. Thanks for listening, Carl. 15, 15 or 16% yields getting to the point where I'm like, ah, I'll just about risk it for that. Yeah, at some point you're compensated for it, right? Well, it turns out that not everybody will work for $100,000 a year and be like, you know, the greatest capital allocator of all time at that price tag. Yeah. yeah. He's a little undervalued there. Does he get a bonus? <laughs> No, but he gets like I think another four hundred thousand for oh, like security. security detail. Yeah, but otherwise, yeah, he's he's he might be a little bit underpaid. <laughs> he gets some other benefits from it though. He he gets the he gets the regional pay package because he's based in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, that's right. It's price adjusted. <laughs> work and it's a work from home, right? So work from home. Even... Yeah. You think he's going in the office in COVID times? No way. Why would you? I wouldn't, but I wouldn't go into the no. office anyway. He, he likes his drive into the office. He takes his, uh, has the... McDonald's, yeah. yeah. How's he, he going to get make McSausage? McSausage when he performs. <laughs> I wouldn't mess around. I mean, he's in the high risk category. Yeah. But he's made it this far, so, you know, he's probably going to, probably got this, at least this much left in him. He's got gates in his ear being like, this thing can take you out. I don't think I'd do it. I wouldn't do it. Not if my boy was Bill Gates. I'd be like, I don't know. I'll tell you what, the curve is going straight up. At least it looks that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. what's we'll Thanksgiving going to look like for when everyone gets it together and coughs on the mashed potatoes or whatever? I've been, I've been trying to know. ask my wife if we can, if we can quarantine at home. Not not see family. That's that sounds ideal to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I said, I'm gonna wait to see if uh, some housing inventory hits the market around here. Oh yeah, there's a chance. Over that period specifically, or <laughs> because no. right. the next oh, long oh, sorry, sorry, I misunderstood yeah. that. We need to get someone who's that, who who knows technical analysis to tell us if that curve is breaking out. I think it is. I think it is. I think it's breaking out on high volume. 50 That's day. A signal. 50 DMA. Yeah. If it crosses yeah. over the 200, you got the golden cross and then you got to get long. 
do you have to worry about a Hindenburg omen or is that a different thing? Yeah, I forget what the, I, I, I don't know what the Hindenburg is. The death cross to... is the other way, right? 50 and 200. Death cross. That's when I sell everything every time. You give me a Hindenburg omen, I'm half out. <laughs> death cross, I'm out. <laughs> Liquidate all. That's right. It's never sell or until the Hindenburg omen. All so right. Speaking of never sell, what's uh, Costco no more? Huh? Yeah, it seemed like a good yeah. segue there. Yeah. So I, I, th- I, I thought the people, everybody was complaining about. I thought we were complaining last week. In fact, that he hadn't bought any, even though he's got Costco's biggest cheerleader as his business partner. I know. Well, I think now you've got a little bit of a different situation because I guess you're somewhat saturated in the U.S. I mean, I'm sure they can still open a couple more, right? But the open more boxes here is probably less of a potential. It's got to be a China story, which when they opened up that China store, that was crazy. That was like a rock concert. But I guess, you know, I guess if you're looking at it and you're him, and he's probably doing much more advanced calculations than I am, but, you know, free cash flow yield on the equity is maybe 3%. I figure it grows like five or six percent. What's the probability of some multiple fade between now and perpetuity? Reasonable. Yeah. You're back to flat. Yeah. So like you multiples know, don't you're... re-rate anymore. Multiples only expand. They just go up. Unless you, unless they're value stocks, in which case they they contract. <clears throat> That's true. The... Yes, there is multiple it... momentum for sure. It's a ratchet. It just only goes up one way and stops, and then keeps going. <laughs> I pulled up the chart for I, I can't remember it might have been. Oh, I'm but don't you think that's wrong. what he's thinking before we get too far off it? I mean, he's probably thinking there like, all right, so I probably get somewhere between a five and ten percent return, maybe in a good side. I get twelve. Like, can cash do a lot better for me? That's how I'd think about it. I think. You think he's I, he's getting as sorry sorry Jack. You think he's getting well, as much return? Saying, that's, what? Yeah. You think he's getting that much? You think there's that much return in Costco from here? I think you get five to ten percent. That's a wide range, sir. Oh, the twelve I is mean, what I had. No, no, I said. I, look, okay. there's a way. You know that I'm in team melt up. I mean, I think things could go nuts. I don't. Maybe the fifty PE is the new. You know, rates are at zero, bro. So where else are you going to go? And fifty PE is where everything trades. That's. It's. I don't see why it's not possible. I. But aren't we fundamental investors? Aren't we? Aren't Narrator, we? it was already. Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> aren't we like looking at the aren't we like buying the flows buying, buying the divvies and the uh, the reinvestment I'm saying if you're asking me how it's possible to get that return I think it's possible multiple if expansion is the... if I think it's probable I it seems hard to me that a lot of these names are going to deliver satisfactory returns in the future but that's a hell of a business and Kirkland no just dispute. grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. So it could outgrow what people think. Well, but I think your logic is sound for why he would say he's not buying more. But like, why sell at this point? I don't know. You know, Charlie That's... was like, "Come on, out of everything." Right. We you got go. all this, all this stuff, and that's what you're gonna punch out of. Yeah, you're gonna all keep right. that Wells exposure. Can't you just get rid of that if you need the cash? Well, Charlie's not saying that because look at the Daily Journal portfolio. <laughs> That's because Charlie knows it's still still cheap. Yeah. Kevin's at Luke has come through with the uh, details for us. He says 42 PE, 39 Ford PE. 
have to project the analyst expected earnings growth forward over 18 years to justify the valuation. Bargain. Yeah. You'd probably get another bite of that cherry, a little bit lower. You'd think. But if you didn't sell Coke I don't yeah, know, sell in 98, why sell this little bit of Costco now? Did, was what? it his? Was it one of the boys? I think that was his, but I'm I can't no, I don't know for that's sure. That's a decent question. It's it's interesting. You see those guys making moves like this in in a never sell era. Yeah, it's so a, what does that mean for never sell? Well, I think never sell may make sense as a strategy for certain people. It's not the one I'm yeah. comfortable with. I, I think there's a lot to be said for never sell. Uh but not like if you're looking to it's hard right if you're looking to maximize the pre-tax returns never sells probably not the best way to do it if you're looking for like a calmer longer life maybe maybe never sell is a good way of doing it just wait for things to get wait for good things to get cheap then take your opportunity yeah. and then just coffee can it and never never look at it again and you just you your plan is like in 10 years time I'll be getting the dividends out of it but in the interim I'm not going to think about it Ooh, that 0.73% dividend yield is not juicy. That's about the juicy. eight. It's about the 10 year. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd rather own Costco than the 10 year. Yeah. I mean, the 10 year is creeping up to true. one at the moment. I don't know. The 10 year could have gone through one. I don't know where it is today. It was getting up there. It pulled back a little bit. I'd still take Costco at a discount to the 10 year out of the gate. But to your point, the 10 year is not your only opportunity cost. 10 year is running up a little bit too. It'll happen. We it can't have that. No, someone, can someone get BOJ on the phone and see if they I mean, can tell so us what to do. Something that I think is interesting is I mentioned CrowdStrike last week, right? And then I, I talked to somebody that I think knows a whole lot more than I do. And he said, look at the history of security firms and tell me one that has made it. And like Semantic had and McAfee, I guess, had a good run. But I was saying, like, how defensible is this? And if you look at what the valuation implies, I think you need to believe that the asset duration is going to be there for a while. And, you know, he's not endowed with the answer, but he was like, I there's not a chance that I would ever bet on that continuing for for perpetuity. And he, he said, if you look at what they're acquiring, it's sort of like more weird businesses that he thinks that their clients are pushing them into and they're selling more services but not like software services like it requires more engineers so he pushed back on me strongly uh i i didn't have a view right i just said can you explain to me why this is defense defensible <clears throat> and the message i received was haha it's not so you know that guy's got a bias too but it just goes to the People in the market, I think, like to endow these stocks that go up with narratives that are never sell. And mm. here I pinged a guy that I know in the industry, and he had a strongly different uh, opinion, which is not to say he is right or wrong, but it is to say I think that there's benefit in talking to a lot of people when you're researching these things. Understand well, short... well endowed with answers right now. That's right. Yeah. That's what you need. You need well endowed. There's or a... you don't. I don't know. It's how you use your contacts. <laughs> My point is, it's important to understand what people are saying on both sides of the trade and figure out what's real. 
There's a good. I got a good uh, good comment here. The boys can buy new cell phones, but they can't sell the old man's Buick. I enjoyed that one. Just wanted to get that for the listeners home. The eight years mm. at eight point eight seven three. That's sorry. The ten years at point eight point eight seven three. It's fallen out of bed. I don't know what's happening. I mean, is it? What's the difference with some of these numbers? I mean, it's nothing. It's is nothing. There, there's, yeah, it's not a that's not a market price on so an absolute basis. It. It, it's quite a big move, but on a on a yeah big percentage to basis. itself relative to itself, it's yeah. a big move on a percentage basis. Yeah, no yeah. doubt, no doubt. Oh, yeah. It's going to be an interesting coming years. I, I'm sort of looking forward to it. What what what's what do you think is going to happen? Or you don't know? You're just interested. I to don't see. have a clue. I'm just trying not to step over my own feet and like ruin everything that I've tried to build. It's a difficult task in this environment. I mean, you know, we were talking about um, Buffett and how he's like sort of created his own sovereign, right? And I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm trying to do something. So, like, when I tell people I own cigarette companies, I don't know if that's the best equity in the world. I'm not running that strategy. I'm not an equity hedge fund manager. I'm a guy that's trying to build a fortress of personal wealth. I think getting 10% dividend yield selling cigarettes right now is a pretty good proposition in general. If you need to generate cash flow in your life relative to the other cash flowing assets and then using that cash flow to maybe make longer duration bets. That's how my mind works. Probably saw some Lucy's down the corner get a kind of similar return like that. Some Lucy's? You know, you, you bust the packet open and sell them one at a time. Oh, yeah. That would be excellent. Is that like prison slang, Toby? I didn't know you. <laughs> yeah. You, you got to be careful. What is that? The coppers will come along and choke you to death, though, so you got to be careful with that one. I didn't know if you were trying to turn me into like a theoretical pimp or something like that. <laughs> no. I didn't know what selling Lucy's meant. Like Toby, I, I, what are you talking about? I think man? you need a license. I think you need a license. So don't don't go doing that without a license. That's not I used investment to do that advice. Coca Cola back in the day. There you go. Put it in the little radio flyer and drag it around and break up a six pack. Web or you did that? I did. I actually inspired by Web. No, no. I didn't, my buddy, his dad was like a big time entrepreneur, so he had the idea. I just did it with him, but it was fun. I think Buffett has a similar story, didn't he? Buy it wholesale, sell it, sell it retail, sell them individually. Yeah, but that dude like did it. I just sort of piggybacked the idea. And then I felt kind of bad because we were actually selling it to construction workers in the neighborhood. And I was kind of like, I should probably just give this out, like, you know, morally, but whatever. Reminds me of a story Ivanka Trump told when she was selling lemonade. And she said that it was very difficult because there weren't enough, there wasn't enough demand. On Fifth Avenue? Behind a gate. Yeah, yeah, she's behind the gate. There wasn't enough demand. It's like, oh, cry me a river. I did. I digress. It turns out I think she sold the stuff to her uh, bodyguard, so she found demand. It's all in her book. Was she like 25, 26 at the time? <laughs> Probably. It was a Harvard Business School case. <laughs> anyway, Ugh. we've derailed. Yeah. Jake. All right, veggie time. So this segment is uh, it's called the Data of Long-Lived Institutions, and that's it's based on this uh, article and a and a presentation that Alexander Rose gave, and he's part of the Long Now Foundation. And those are the guys. I don't know if you remember, but they like built this ten thousand year clock, uh, and maybe even longer than that. What's interesting about it is, and I like this as a 
sort of like setting the tone but on all the dates that they put things on they add a fifth they add a zero to the front of the year right <laughs> so they make it it's zero 2020 right now right you need to start thinking a little bit further out ahead right i love so, that i'm going to create yeah, a clock do. that doesn't move and say it's a ten thousand year clock it'll, <laughs> it'll tick over in a thousand years or whatever yeah just hang years. around and wait for it uh, so the first thing uh, to talk about is what they call this uh, pace layers. And they have this diagram. Like if sort of imagine like the layers of maybe the earth or something, you know, and you have like as you move down more, uh, more and more layers. And out on the outer shell is fashion. And then next down is commerce, then infrastructure, governance, culture, and then finally nature. And all those things, like the things on the outer rim move much faster than the things on the inner rim. So they use the example of Apple, uh, iPhones and whatever. Fashion there is, you know, Apple's putting out a new iPhone every, you know, 12 months or whatever. Um, the commerce layer is, you know, Apple's selling methods. So let's say it's like commercials where it's, you know, people dancing to a U2 song, you know, these shadow people. Uh, <laughs> And that sort of changes at a slower pace than than maybe the the phone. Uh, and then below that is the infrastructure, which would be you know all the cell phone networks and the chip fabs, things like that. Um, next layer down is governance, and that is often the government, but doesn't have to be the government. Uh, and that's you know like things like privacy and standards, and even like you know like how many cycles electricity wise when you plug the phone in, is it running at? Is it sixty cycles? Um, that changes slower. And then you get to culture, which, um, you know, nowadays, I guess you'd probably expect most people to have a, a cell phone if you met them. But, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. I don't think I wouldn't expect everyone to be carrying a cell phone. Um, and then last thing is like nature. And, you know, the, they kind of bring up like, you know, some of the environmental damage that that a lot of these electronics cause with rare earth, you know, all the stuff, all the earth you have to move through to get some of these uh, elements, you know, Apple may at some point need to address that if they're going to be that long lived. So anyway, it's a sort of interesting paradigm to think about these different layers and how quickly they change or not. Um, next thing, 1950, the average company in the Fortune 500 was 61 years old at that point. Today, right. that it's 18 years old. That's now, crazy. My question to you, I know. My question to you guys would be, all right, we're seeing faster turnover now, but do you think that that is, is that a secular or a cyclical thing? Like, have we just hit, we hit some like IT or whatever technology uh, revolution and that turned over the, the portfolio of the Fortune 500? Or is it like, don't expect the new guys to stick around for very long? Like, what do you think we are? Are we in a cyclical or secular there? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I've thought about that a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I've got pretty good arguments for both for both sides. But the the secular the secular one is when you look back, there have been these you know there are, there are these I don't know how often, but like every forty something years, there's a big technological revolution. And uh, I've, I've looked at it in the context of value and growth, but it's it, you know it's it's still it's still true that you have these um, big tech. Maybe it's not as many as forty. Maybe it's less, like 20 or something like that where you do have enormous turnover and uh but then then 
if you if you look if you look at the length of time that companies have the age of them over time in the S&P 500 it's been coming down so it looks like it's a secular but I think sometimes it's hard and this is something I've I think about a little bit too in relation to other things but it's hard to sometimes tease out the secular from the cyclical when you're at a cyclical peak it, it looks secular which is the problem yeah all of the all of the statistics on a secular basis over a very long time period at a cyclical peak look secular. It's what's why investing right. is so hard. Especially the first one of it, right? Like, you know, let's say cloud becomes more of a commodity and has the, maybe it has, goes through cycles eventually. Well, this is the first, we've only seen like right. one half of that then right. potentially so far. And yet it seems like, oh, well, maybe that just keeps going up into the right forever. It seems like it's getting easier to start businesses though and it's easier to get a business to scale on the internet because you can aggregate you know very niche audiences globally and get a fairly big audience pretty quickly where you know there was really no way of doing that even 30 years ago other than like using more mainstream networks like television or something like that you had to had to have the money to advertise on television now you don't like you could you could get a tweet picked up by, you know, somebody who's got a lot of Twitter followers and all of a sudden there's a lot of attention I mean, on your... Three bozos could just get on YouTube and talk for an right. hour every week. And <laughs> and there'll be, there'll be like 10 people, dozens of people watching just every 10, week. Yeah, 10 people watching. <laughs> An important 10 though. Very important 10. That's right. Bill, you have any thoughts on the kind of secular versus cyclical? Uh, Probably none worth sharing. I think I'm where Toby is on it. I, I think that, I mean, obviously, you know, Tesla is going to be around for a long, long time. But forever. the rest, I don't know. I just saw that they were included in the S&P, so they were up 12%. So I figured I'd make that joke. I don't know. I think, um, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I My sense is that I'm I'm more prone to like the moat and durability of businesses that require capital to replace them to those that are intangible. But I also realize that intangible scales a lot quicker and network effects are real. But it's similar to when I think I've said this before, but like when I was in physics, I was always it was much more intuitive to me when we were talking about things that I could like touch in the physical world or how cars go around a racetrack. When we got into magnetic fields, it was always sort of harder for me to get my head around. I think it's somewhat similar. Hmm. Yeah. There's probably a good analogy I could torture there somewhere eventually. Um, <laughs> all right. So more data. Well, oh, go ahead. No, sorry. I, I, I keep going. I, I, I got to think about, there was something germane to it, but I got to think about where I heard it. So keep going. Sorry. All right. Uh, so they looked at a study of 5,500 companies that were over 200 years old. And 56% of them, so 3,100 of them, were in Japan, which is interesting. And then another 18 or 15%, 800, were in Germany. And then everything else is kind of all over the place. Uh, any ideas why Japan is happens to be a place for old companies well i was thinking about this the other day japan has doesn't japan have the oldest continuously operating might even be family business and it might be like a thousand years old it's like a, it's either a restaurant or a soy sauce manufacturer or something like that uh, i mean it probably i'm not sure what 
what the the oldest one is, but there's a lot of pressure on you if you're the if you're the the child who has to inherit that that business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's nothing yeah, you, you, you don't can't do be anything the one else. That messes it up. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Though well, you would think that over a thousand years, an idiot's run it. There must be something yeah. special about that. Statistically, business. yeah, yeah, just... especially within family. Like I know a fair amount of people wouldn't trust their family members over a professional manager. Right? Like I'm sure some somebody in the family at some point's like, oh, this guy's an idiot, but he's the oldest, so he's got to take it over. This is BS. Our gravy train is gonna stop. Yeah. The collective hive mind has come through with the answer. It's a hotel that opened in 705. Bang. 00705. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay. I wonder That's if they read... a hotel. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get wow. to that in a little bit. That's a good segue. Um, huh. So another interesting finding of these 5,500 companies, 90% of them have less than 300 employees so there's something about size that creates problems apparently that lead to eventual dissolution yeah. and i don't know if it's a, a dilution of the culture whether it's uh you know there's dunbar's law which i'm sure you guys are familiar with that's the the 150 people units uh, you know, it's used militarily, like tribes tend to be in that size. And it has to do with they think that the human brain can only handle roughly 150 relationships and keep track of like social, the social uh, load of keeping track of the relationships kind of tops out at 150. Um, but then like, but this is 300. So why would it be? Why is it not? One, I would have believed more if it said it was under 150. I'd be like, oh, well, that's Dunbar's law at play, but it's 300. And that I find that to be interesting. Maybe Although I did a, do a little bit more. Maybe derivative or something. Maybe. No, I did not. a little more research, and there's uh, anthropologists in like the mid-19th century uh, or 20th century in uh, New Guinea, which was a, a popular place to do like anthropolog anthropological research because they're kind of like backward in time there relative to more advanced and they found that villages rarely exceeded 300 people because after above 300, there would be schisms, you know, along kind of inner clan within the, the tribe. And they would, you know, there'd just be a buildup of social tension to where it would break up eventually. So that 150 number, maybe it's more like 300. I don't know. But it, it is interesting. Like, why would smaller last longer? I think you can adapt a little bit easier if you're smaller. Right, you get big, you get like an aircraft carrier, and then you can start taking on water from a lot of places. And you know, like at the um, banking's different, right? But it's the only place that I've really worked that's been that large. But everything was so process driven. I mean, it was so hard to get anything done. And it's like, you know, you wonder why can't we get a term sheet out? But it's got to go to credit, and then credit's got to run up the chain if there's something weird, and then it's got to come back to your manager, and then you got to change it in a system, and then it's got to go back, and it's like, what are we Risk doing management. here? Yeah, yeah, and the, and the answer is, you know, the errors have a huge. I think that there's merit to having your banks that regulated, but I do think that it makes them susceptible to you know, be attacked. Conversely, I actually think that it gives them some defensibility because not just anyone can't enter into that. And like these fintech companies, as long as they can sort of exist on the edges 
and offload all that stuff to a partner bank that's willing to do it, that's one thing. But like you fintech people that think you want your fintech to become a bank are out of your minds. You can have a re-rating well, that's going to tear you your need face those off. Covers on your TPS reports always. So that's that's one problem. <laughs> but that's what it is, right? I mean, if if you are big and you get into that market, like you that stuff matters. I mean, it, it's maybe not that crazy, but yeah, you got to make sure boxes are ticked and everybody's got to go through it and you know, let the regulators in. You can look at what happens at Wells when the regulators get in. I mean, that's a that's a unique circumstance, but once they start scratching at something, it's not like they just walk away. Yeah. So uh, another study of a a thousand companies that are over 300 years old, so a little bit older, smaller subset, 230 of them are in the alcohol business. So what, sake, beer, or wine? Uh, Nice. 117 hotels, 88 restaurants, 67 food or sauce, uh, 43 in pharma, 40 universities, and eight, I know, 18 in the financial. So I'm... Like there's these, that's sort of what you were hinting at before, Toby, about Lindy effect. Like people probably need to eat. They probably want to drink some booze uh, and they probably want to roof over their head occasionally. And you, and you, you, you got a, uh, you get a habit. Like if you like one brand of soy sauce, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's not a huge part of your budget when you buy it. So you're going to buy the one that you like. It's the same with booze. If you like one particular brand, you keep on buying that brand. You yeah, think weed's going to be that way? Share. I don't think weed's going to be that way. Well, that's one of the. I think that that's weed is a big risk for booze, right? I think I yeah. sort of thought that was I why there was a lot of weakness in booze. Share of throat, for lack of a better term. I used to not think that. I've morphed on that. I saw Sam Adams when Sam Adams got cheap a few years ago. Came into my screens and I looked at it and I thought, "What's the? It was the dumbest thing I've ever thought." But like, what's the impact of weed on this thing? I should have just bought it because it's up a lot since then. But I did start thinking about Sam like, Adams. Yeah, that's different though, man. They came out with that seltzer, and then uh, they also got Dogfish Head. Like that was, I don't know that that was totally foreseeable. No, but it was cheap. And my, uh, yeah. what I think what I've seen is that if the business is good enough, when it gets cheap, they figure out some other thing. Like I think that's kind of, it's a, it's a, like Can a partially a formed idea. What you're saying, though? Yeah. The really important thing, I think, in Sam stock is they only had, like, 1% of the market, right? So right now, like, Molson, or what, TAP, whatever, what is it, Miller Coors? Yeah, Miller Coors used to be Molson Coors. Like, that's cheap, I think. But I don't know that I would have the same... Um, it's a different dynamic than Sam had. Sam has always sort of been going, like, very... Um, that ship is always sailing pretty well. I don't think that Sam has ever been taking on a lot of water from business lines and stuff like that. They've just sort of always been under the radar and good. Got, got a big owner operator in there too, which is a big, big plus for Sam. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably somewhat shell shocked from my bud days. Did 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 your bud work out or not work out? Um, I mean, the stock didn't work. We'll see how. It, I wasn't willing to hold the business risk through coronavirus with all that leverage on top of it. I just got nervous. And I, I also, when I sold was in March and I, I was very concerned that emerging markets would just get destroyed by coronavirus. And they seemed to have been having a hard enough time getting growth as it was. I didn't really want to lose like two, 3% of your drinking population. I didn't know if that was realistic at the time, but 
it's amazing how the explosion in boutique breweries like when you go into the supermarket now there's just shelves of it when that wasn't the case you know even 10 years ago dude the problem is now it's all owned by private equity so people think it's a bunch of like small guys but they've all been rolled up and bought by pe that's why some of it all sucks now does that help with the distribution is that is that why you do that you get a whole lot of portfolio you get a portfolio and then you've already got the distribution for it yeah like bud is the biggest craft brewer is that right by volume yeah the big guys always win i guess yeah. I, yeah, but I don't know. Illusion because, of choice. Yes, the illusion of choice um, is very, very true. But I think that one thing I think when I was honest with myself about that, when they took over Goose Island, like the quality of Goose Island's beers went down quite a bit. And I think that part of what those big breweries suffer from is it's almost like buying a new car where the second that they close on the transaction, the brewery's worth less. Mm. Even though, you know, you can theoretically say, well, we'll just pump out the distribution. I think the brand image takes a hit that's yep. real and like beer nerd drinkers. Good comment from, yeah. the, from the hive mind here. Uh, beer in REC cannabis legal states or recreational cannabis legal states is down mid single digits off base year. That's interesting. Yeah, it was probably down low single digits before. I could see that. Weird thing about alcohol consumption, though, is it follows a power law. So, like, a, a really high percentage of the population doesn't drink. And then, like, the top decile is basically just degenerate. <laughs> and then and then the second and third. Del- oh, you got your mic cut for that, mate. Yeah, you did. Whoops. Big what? alcohol. Big alcohol. Cut your mic. Oh, yeah. Well, th- I mean, it, it's kind of sad when you look at how much the top decile drinks it's it's impossible to argue that those people are living healthy lives yeah sad or amazing (laughs) yeah all right next data point uh one way to build something that lasts is to take a really long time to build it and so there's this the sagrada familia cathedral in spain they've been building it for 125 years it's not done yet but it's already a UNESCO heritage site. They're still <laughs> building it. <laughs> still a startup. Still, still, yeah, startup. still in startup phase. Maybe um, that's Amazon's big trick. It's always day one run. It's always day one. Yeah. Uh, another way is to is to oh, is to keep rebuilding. So there apparently there's in the Shinto religion there are these uh, these uh, temples that they they rebuild them right next to them, and it's like an eight year process, and there's a bunch of ceremony involved with it. But they're they're able to continually like refresh it effectively. Um, another idea is that that universities have built into them, uh, you know, they have a new set of customers every four years that they have to sell to. So there's kind of a refresh rate that is built into it. Um, now whether they've done a good job of that lately, I, you know, I'm not so sure. But um, that's a topic for a different conversation. Uh, and then one other thing is the this the idea of communities of practice. So like martial arts, for instance. Some of these have been around for, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years. Um, and it's it gets handed down from person to person um, in a community of practice. I think we got the earliest startup on the screen here. Congo, oh, sorry, not startup, oldest business. Congo Gumi started in 578. It's a construction company. That would be the only construction company that's continuously operated through more than one business cycle. <laughs> So the, the last uh, the last piece of this, and it's probably the best piece, the most interesting, 
it's this idea that adversity breeds longevity. And they, so this, the bristlecone pine is the oldest, like continually living species of anything on earth. And what's interesting is that it was actually, it wasn't discovered that how old they were through like coring or anything like that. Um, it was that it was actually scientists had found like the, the harsher the conditions, the older the tree that tended to be there. So someone postulated, if you go find like the worst, harshest condition, I bet you'll find the oldest tree there. And so people started going to all these like crazy mountain, desolate mountain ranges. And they found these bristlecone pines that were over 5,000 years old hmm. there. Uh, so it was like, like they backed into the right answer. That's crazy. So does it is it because the harsh conditions bring about stronger trees? Or is it because harsh con- only the strongest trees can survive in harsh conditions, can get started in harsh conditions? Only the, the strongest can survive through the harsh conditions. And they, they learn how to... And nothing can compete with conditions. them. Yeah, nothing can right. compete. So, you know, to huh. just to have to run through that gauntlet, you you have to be very hardy, right? So, um, sounds like value investors. I, <laughs> surviving yeah, value investors. Survive that harsh conditions. I like that you talked about that because I have like these huge oaks outside my, um, like on the property that we're renting. And I think, like, how the heck do these things make it through hurricanes? But they have, right? There, I mean, there's. It's impossible that they're under a hundred years old. These things are incredible. But then, you know, you go just down the down the south a little bit, and they've got all these ficus trees. And ficus, the roots grow out and not down. So, like, just a puff of wind comes, and they all just topple over. So it's interesting. There was a, there was a quote this week or last week by Einhorn where he said, and I'm going to get this wrong. So if you, whoever if someone hears this one and knows the correct quote, put it up on the screen, but it was like, he prefers businesses that are capital intensive and undervalued. I think I tweeted it out. I'll have to look it up because he, does, does anybody know that, that quote? Uh, let me pull it up. It's yeah, I do. Me. And he said, because he said that he liked it to be more resilient. The problem with a lot of these businesses, right? So, uh, there's there's these theoretically great businesses, right? And then you pull up the cash flow statement and all of the operating cash flow is share based compensation. Is that and right? And then you ask people, well, like, well, why why is the free cash flow share based compensation? And it's like, well, everybody's doing it. Okay. Well, if everybody if the business has an inherent characteristic that it cannot compete without people in it, right? Like there I mean, we're talking generally these asset lace IP companies. If there's a dynamic in it that says, well, everybody's doing something, so I have to do it also, whether that's hiring more engineers or whether that's giving away stock, like over time, it's very fathomable to me that a lot of these are just terrible investments to have minority interests in. They may be great businesses, but like over the long term, Dilution really matters. If you got a two or three year time horizon, who cares? It's what's going to make the stock work. But if you're really going to own it, like that stuff adds up. It's like trying to put your fingers in all the di- other holes opening up in the dike, right? It just keeps on. There's just too many holes. You just all yeah, of the value just it- leaks away. I found the quote, by the way. It's important to analyze return on equity, but only in capital-intensive businesses. It may surprise you, but I prefer at the right price capital-intensive businesses with low return on equities. 
where I think the return on equity will improve to higher, at least medium return on equity. No, that makes sense. That was a lot <laughs> of the airline pieces. That that might be his problem over the last decade. I don't I don't dis I like that I like that approach. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no improvements in in ROE. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I mean it's it that's hard to that's hard to pick though, right? There's not a lot of improvement in ROE. A lot of the uh, the only places that you find improvement in ROE statistically is in stuff that's not doing very well on an ROE basis. Yeah, I think that maybe what Buffett saw in the airlines when he got into it, combined with capital returns, as the credit cards made up a larger and larger portion of their earnings, yeah. you know, that's a better business. And I think that was part of it. Well, I'll tell you what, go have a look at like some of the big oil companies right now and their return on equity back when things were humming along with oil prices. Was it still terrible? Compared to today. Was it no, they better. were great. It was great. Just, yeah. Yeah. And now they they look terrible, right? Because well, imagine if whatever you were selling got cut in a third the price of what you could charge for it. Like how difficult would that be on your business? It did volume stocks. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. That I'm trying not to sell them, I'm trying to buy them, I'm trying to sell the sell the expensive I'm stuff. I'm trying to make a joke. It's a good one. <laughs> Just trying to defend myself. Einhorn is a bristlecone pine. Let's hope. Scrubby. Those are those are good veggies, Jake. And all by himself up what, on a mountain. <laughs> what, what's the what's the underlying um? What's the underlying paper or what, where where did, where did that come from? Oh, uh, it was um, it, it was an article and a presentation that this uh, that Alexander Rose put together. And it was called the data of long-lived institutions. There's like some that. other stuff in there that's good too that I didn't didn't include, but um, yeah, it's worth checking out. Yeah, I'm very interested in stuff that's got lots of longevity at the moment. Stuff that seems invincible. Well, if you're going to be never sell, you gotta you have right. to be thinking like this, right? And if you're not asking yourself these kind of questions, like I question your never sell mentality. <laughs> Well, the, the sell rules for Terry Smith were like when ROE starts declining, when when the business itself starts starts looking a little bit worse. But there's going to be a, even in even in higher ROE businesses, there's a little bit of cyclicality. And I don't know if you're ever going to be the first person out the door. I don't think you can be because I think that the market's pretty sensitive to that. That's that's that was my always my complaint. Like back when ROE, you know, the first decade of this millennium where ROE just sort of bumped sideways for a long time. Any time there was any slowdown on those things, you got cut to, cut to shards. Not but anymore. ROE is you can juice it with leverage. That's why I think invested capital makes more sense. But Yeah, that's right. But then, you know, Buffett says he likes ROE and then he controls for the leverage. Because like essentially you're buying, the, you're buying the equity, right? You're not buying the invested capital. So if you're buying the equity... You got to make yeah. sure they're running the equity the way you would want to run the equity. No doubt. Or you understand how to do it. Like I would not want to run Malone entities the way he runs it, but I trust him to do it his way. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Like it I am does. not. I don't understand debt like he does, but I understand that. Maybe you do understand like debt, debt like he does, and he just hasn't got to the uh, the terminal point yet. Well, I think that I don't know how to. I, he's he's just much better at pushing the market, you know. Like he's got this swag that he can 
he can throw it, it around, right? Same with 3G. I mean, those guys like have almost an unlimited ability to issue debt. So I sort of understand why they do what they do, but I, Bill Brewster, do not have that. So it's just different. Three questions in, folks. We've we've only a little. We've got ten minutes left, so we'll uh, we'll take them. It was funny how many people tagged me about Burry buying Curate. Like, I mean, I guess that's cool, but I don't really care. If anything, <laughs> if anything, it hurts because it gets the stock on people's radar. And like the way that I can actually make buy a back. lot of money is, yeah, like the stock languishes, but the business goes. Um, but nice for the reputation, I guess. Yeah, there's some value guys following following this pod, I think. Buffett yeah, into well, a few. Yeah, well, good. They know the right idiots. <laughs> uh, bozos, Bill. That's sorry, <laughs> sorry, Bozos. Yeah, it's my my idiot apology. Bozo. All right, I got a, I got, I got one here. It's too long for me to. Here we go. Are behavioral strategies like buying low multiple stocks, betting on overreaction, no longer creating alpha? If no, is it due to more efficient markets and/or less mean reversion in margins earnings? Yeah, that's a that, that, that's I, a Toby question. That's a that, there's a long, long discourse on that question. It's a great question. Um, there certainly seem to. Uh, I think that O'Shaughnessy has some research specifically on this, looking at the two. If you bifurcate the market into growth and value stocks, growth being the higher multiple ones value being the low multiple ones what has traditionally happened is that there's been multiple expansion in the low multiple ones multiple contraction in the high multiple ones even though the underlying earnings tend to fall for value and tend to grow for for growth that has not been the case over about the last 10 years five or ten years particularly uh, there's there are as many opinions about why that is the case as there are people out there and everybody's got something new, new and unique and wants to test it I don't think anything really holds up other than the market does some weird things for some time over long periods of time. I don't think that there are a lot of people um, lining up to buy value stocks now, but I have seen that there's there's some research going around that says that if you ask people what they think is going to outperform value or growth, then people say value, but I don't think that their money is invested that way. I just don't understand what this means. Like, um, I, I think over time... If you execute a strategy and like like Toby, you've overlaid buybacks into yours. So if you're right, it's gonna work. Like this isn't I, I yes, if you have to be judged on the stock price and mark to market, I have no idea whether or not it outperforms. But there's there's nothing that I I don't even understand the question because if you just go from first principles, like I bought Curate. Curate's a value stock. If the stock gets cut down to two, Greg Maffei will buy the entire company in under a year. It's how the math has to work. The stock will go up. Like, it can't not. So, um, that's right. I just, I, I don't understand. I mean, yeah, there's a bunch of shitty businesses out there that aren't going to re rate. But I think that if you're choosy, it's a great pond. That's right. But to be fit, like, the- even even being choosy in this in this you can you can go through these periods of time where there are these perplexing moves where things that are too undervalued that are ta- that are doing the catalytic steps still go backwards, and that's the. It's particularly odd in a seller's market too, right? Where it's like everything else is catching a bid, but this right. isn't. It's like what is going on? The markets have these periodic manias. It's just it's just what happens. Everybody needs to blow off some steam every twenty years or so and, and learn a brand new lesson. 
learn that same old lesson personally for themselves and it just it's about a 20 year cycle it took 10 years I mean, the other 15 years two innings 20 years that means we've got another <laughs> eight innings what what the years i think you got to pray to the like this is why i think uh one of buffett's like real strengths was he legitimately thought this way. I mean, if, if you're buying value and you're hoping to outperform in the next six months, I have no idea whether or not, like, that doesn't even make sense to me because I would bet on momentum in the short term. But over the long term, it seems to me that I would rather own things that are cheaper, all else equal, coming out of the gate. Now, obviously, some of the compounder bros are going to be like, yeah, but the businesses suck. Well, they don't all suck. I got a good one here. Um, Chris Cole was on Grant Williams. I saw him tweet this out. He said, uh, fundamentals are dead. Uh, it's all about flows, which is the, the Mike Green argument. Um, the question is, how do you pivot or how do you respond if that's reality? So I would say... no. Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to go? Uh, Jake, I just want to say that that's that makes no sense. Yeah. It, they may be suspended for a while, but they're not dead. That doesn't make any sense. Like at the end of the day, these are still businesses that are out there doing things, making money or not, and eventually that matters. And I, you, I don't think maybe I'm completely blind and you know a religious zealot, but you're gonna have a hard time convincing me otherwise that that flows are the only thing that matters. Yeah, I've gone back and forth with Chris about that. Chris has been telling me about this thesis for quite a long time and I've been talking to him about it. And my my first impression, my initial impression when he first told me about this was if it benefits some stocks and it doesn't benefit others, that just creates some undervalued stocks, in which case I'll buy the undervalued stocks. And if you're, you think about how you get a return as an investor, as a value investor, as a fundamental investor, as an investor, the way that Munger and Buffett define it. How do you get your return? You get your return through through any yield, any dividend that it pays out, any stock that's bought back, and then you get the reinvestment in the business. You get the reinvestment and the growth in the underlying business. And so if I get these opportunities to buy really good things really cheaply and I can get yield and growth in them, it doesn't matter to me how the market treats the multiple in those stocks because I can hold on to them and just keep... you know. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not necessarily pitching Icon Equity Partners, but I'm just using this as an example. Or Diamond Hill, or uh, or Greenlight Re, or any of these sort of businesses that the yield in them is is astronomically high at the moment. It's it's possible that there's some. I haven't dug into them deeply enough to know if it's sustainable or not. But I think that it is. In for Diamond Hill, I think that it's reasonably sustainable. You know, if you're getting a 10%, 15% yield in a world where the 10 years at like whatever it is, 90 bips. Uh, I, I'll do that deal all day long. I'll just keep on doing that deal. It doesn't matter to me how the market treats it. Yeah, I guess uh, you know the only thing is the market may never give you the bid that you want, but eventually you'll get it. You just gotta have the staying power to get there. But what do I, what do I even care about the bid? Like, if, what why do I care about the bid if I can get if I can get the yield and I can see the underlying business? Like, regardless of how the market treats that business, if the underlying business itself is growing. Isn't it like as you, you as you say in relation to curate? I just like, think your investors need to stick with you to get your returns. So that's that's and that is the institutional constraint that makes this all very very difficult. That's Mike Green's argument that the value investors all get their they all get fired 
And so the yeah. market becomes only indexed because index is price insensitive. They never sell, they only buy if there's flows going into them. But I think even in that market, can't I then just go and raise, you know, I, there are enough business guys out there who understand these arguments. If I say, look, you oh, can get stat. a 15% yield here if we buy this thing, we'll take it private. Like, let's do that deal. Let's Instead of let's doing it with one, let's do it with 30 and let's not take them private. Let's just hold them. Let's just get the yield and the growth. There you go. <laughs> That's my business. There's the acquirer SPAC. We just launched it. <laughs> the acquirer SPAC. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. It's exactly I, I curate, gotten, right? Yes, I have gotten very, very choosy about which capital allocators I tend to get uh, in bed with. And part of the reason is I You're don't want to deal with... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but part of it is, like, I, you know, if... I knew when I was having the curate decision, I, I got enough inbounds that I sort of knew who was buying, why they were buying, who couldn't buy but was interested to buy and who just wasn't interested. I mean, I had enough of those conversations that they sort of understood the setup. And uh, then I was like, all right, well, if none of these guys ever buy, Maffei is going to buy a ton. And then, you know, if people do start to buy, I sort of was able to, to see it's, it's a weird dynamic is like as the market cap grew, some people that were interested could actually enter and you almost get like this flow sucking up the valuation, Ian, which is... Ian Castle. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it completely makes no sense, right? Because you're saying... I mean, it, it does make sense if you're running a fund. But what the comment was is like, we like it, but we can't get in it because it's not liquid enough that we could get out and call it two or three days. So it's like they would be more comfortable buying something higher if it had more liquidity, even though buying at higher prices actually has more risk right it's yep. it's it's counterintuitive you just explained the individual investors advantage yeah well i mean it's at least in that situation it was real we've uh, we've gone uh, a little bit over time but uh, it was a fun one today thanks guys uh we'll be around next week it's... yo mike burry thanks for listening shout out let's make some money together <laughs> Shake it up, stop when the cup gets 13. Sing one, two, three, four. Cause, 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 no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it.